0: Hey, Mr. Schmid, I was just listening to your book 11, part 2, and the second part of it, I guess there's sort of two parts, Uh, you talk a little bit about the role of the scribes and the lack of punctuation in the Greek manuscripts. Um, And I was interested, especially in your point, about how that connects to the way that children learn to write, how how children um, initially write without punctuation and... um, distinguishing between, uh, in, you know, important words by using punctuation marks rather than sort of just naturally assuming that their reader hears what they're saying. You know, uh, I found that really interesting. I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit more about um, where where the Greek manuscripts uh, come down to us, uh, where punctuation comes into the picture, how that relates to to people learning to write you know um in their own lives um i found that all really interesting
1: welcome back to the alexander schmidt podcast episode 040 big benchmark there um we're going to take the next couple podcasts to address questions from bookworm games mr wesley shantz there he asked a he asked a wonderful question which i've appended um above i believe where he, he said that he had, he found interesting in my lecture on Book 11, Part 2, my discussion of the origin of punctuation in language and the connection of the origin of punctuation in language and the use of punctuation and the growing sophistication of use of punctuation by children as they learn to write, with some um, um, some implicating by so saying that Students, just like language and therefore the consciousness of people as it has been transmitted through culture throughout time, uh, goes from being more subjective in terms of simply understanding subjective impulses and the response of the world to those as manifested through one's behavior and the reaction of others around one, um, to, to a perception of of um, that which exe- exists outside of one, uh, perhaps an, un- an understanding that one exists within a place within the world, one is nested within the world, um, within a uh, collective story in which one has an individual role which one can play in um, as an articulated way as uh, one wishes. And that's represented both by writing and by just simply acting out one's role in life. And so a child, as he or she becomes more sophisticated as a writer, learns to focus more on how his or her writing is perceived and less upon um, his or her subjective to- desire to be perceived in a certain way. Um, and, and, or rather, even better, um, it allows, or the student over time becomes less constrained by his or her subjective purview, which means effectively that when the student is young and less sophisticated, he or she is more inclined to believe that his or her writer will completely understand what it is that he's saying um, with, with effortlessly and will give him the benefit of the doubt. In fact, I see this often in my my students, especially the young men, uh, with their terrible handwriting. Because not only do they take liberties with their grammar and their punctuation and their capitalization and their word use and their prose and uh, the degree to which they actually attempt to reason, but they also even will write sloppier often than their compatriots. And especially in my honors classes, I, there's a an overrepresentation by I would say a three to one ratio, perhaps even a four to one ratio, of of young women to men and so um, often the men's mistakes really stand out and so they they seem to struggle. Uh, I certainly see a struggle in young students who are not yet well developed both emotionally and and, uh, contemplatively and uh, structurally in terms of their writing. Uh, They don't express emotion in a nuanced way nor do they express their thoughts. In a nuanced way Though they are capable I believe through how they speak Of nuanced thinking Which indicates to me That they have a naive belief That their writing um, That their writing will be given The same benefit of the doubt Or will be received in the same way That they're speaking Is um, because they fail to realize Just how much One's physical presence and One's voice uh, And, and adds to the equation when one is speaking in terms of helping the listener understand what's being said as well as the fact um, that speaking and writing are certainly different skills and the vast majority of humans who have ever existed have vastly more experience in the skill of speaking in an interpersonal way rather than writing. Um, Though, interestingly enough, the skill of speaking and the skill of public speaking do not seem to be quite as interconnected as you might imagine there is certainly um there is certainly a skill to get in front of people and recognizing the people in the crowd and really having something to say um and being able to own own that sort of experience um, and so in this response, which is already getting longer than I had intended i'll give a little history of the origin of punctuation which i'm not an expert on so perhaps if i ever have sententiae antiquae on here which i would love to um either one of those guys they do great work um maybe they could give us a lesson on that but i can say a couple words for for one the first punctuation system ever seems to have come about during the hellenic period by a third century Helene named Aristophanes, not the same Aristophanes as the Athenian playwright who was beloved by Plato and um, actually figured in one of Plato's dialogues called the Symposium and wrote a, um, and was the guy who stayed up all night with Socrates indicating that creativity and intellect are, are sort of uh, on equal ground to some extent, um, uh, which is also borne out by the Big Five factor analysis put out by Jordan B. Peterson's lab um right now, which is very much interesting. And Aristophanes, again, this is the Athenian one, uh actually wrote a work, uh, The Clouds, about Socrates and uh making fun of philosophers. So it's funny that he figures in a work of philosophy, um with a figure that he makes fun of, and that the figure that he makes fun of figures in his own plays and is made fun of there. And so that's just that's just an Idea of how those Athenian Greeks, (laughs) the sorts of people that they really happened to be, and actually that will help us explain the difference between them and the Romans later. And so this third-century Hellen, Aristophanes from the more decadent culture of the Hellenes, then an in-between culture between the Greeks and the Romans, um, and in-between truly because Alexander the Great was the great representative of them who attempted to take over the world, which would later be a Roman endeavor as well, but still had such an appreciation for Greek culture um that he uh because he was taught by Aristotle and in fact uh, a story about him is that he so loved his teacher Aristotle that when he came upon a new creature on his campaign he would send it back to Aristotle to study um and so the Hellenes are often considered a decadent culture uh based um compared to the Greeks led by the Athenians and the Spartans but um but and and so that helps to Helps one to understand that uh, the first great libraries were maintained by the Hellenes. And in fact, um, there were multiple epics written. Um, in fact, Apollonius, of Ro- Apollonius Rhodius, I believe, was the um, – who wrote the Argonautica, which Jason figures in. Um, I believe he was the third librarian uh, of the great library. So – um very interesting so the so these these were people who had more of a care for storing that which had already been produced and in so doing they started to value the preservation methodology or they developed preservation methodology for uh and and advanced transmission methods for um that which had already been created and that included aristophanes uh giving an attempt at the first punctuation system and so that would later lead on and and actually the production of language it doesn't get to anywhere near what it looks like until uh the creation of the printing press with gutenberg in the 1450s but um there was a major um battle so when aristophanes creates this system for for generating punctuation within the greek text he has as well as the others um he, he doesn't meet with tremendous resistance, but after these techniques are transmitted to the Romans, the Romans had a major culture of oratory, uh, epitomized by Cicero in his works uh, on the rostrum, in his work against Catiline. Um, and so they rejected themselves selfishly thinking that um, punctuation could just would just take away from the flow or the rhythm of the language and the reading but during that time also came about a class of individual called the grammarian and the grammarian essentially is the person who tends to the garden which is already made the person who adds in the punctuation and edits it and so on and um the the process of learning to do this supposedly passed on and involved a major conflict with christians who happened to write down their psalms more frequently than simply speaking them though they did speak them um supposedly a character isadora seville in seventh century had something to say about this and added something to the contribution or to the conversation excuse me again for not knowing particularly much about that but what seems to occur throughout time is that after a certain critical mass of creativity has been expressed in the world um uh, systematizers come about to um uh, bureaucrats people who can who can give structure and form to uh, the the essential creation of what has already been produced and so i would say that in the transmission also of language to young humans that it is precisely similar to that that they start off drawing then they uh, when they're very young and I recall that being one of the favorite my favorite things to do um, and in fact when they're drawing this point is made by Jordan B. Peterson they're actually they're, unless they are very gifted artists or to some extent extra uh, very much autistic, they are most likely, the, the people who are not super artistically gifted, drawing pictograms. So for instance, when they draw a house, what do they draw? They draw a square with a triangle on top, perhaps with a chimney with smoke coming out, even if they've lived in an apartment and never even seen a house like that, often with two windows and a door on it. Um, well, the point made by Peterson is that's a hieroglyphic, essentially. That's, a, that's like a thumbnail on your cell phone's um, desktop or your or your or your actual desktop, your um, your computer screen. And so that is already a primitive form of language. You then learn to, um, you've already learned to speak generally by that time, five to seven, and you learn start to learn to write. You develop your vocabulary. And as you're developing your vocabulary, your capacity to express yourself, your um, your um, capacity to understand greater stories, um, and then to speak about those stories, and to learn lessons from those stories, and more nuanced lessons from those stories. Not only does one's does one's vocabulary and one's ability with language start to develop, but one's very consciousness is developed in this process because um, it's precisely the feedback loop created by perceiving that which has nuance, and then just um, And then digging into that in order to discover the information that was unknown before, um, that's the process that starts to produce a more sophisticated consciousness capable of more conscious articulation of thoughts and emotions. Not just um, thoughts and emotions as stated in a general way, but um, acute or nuanced thought and emotions. In fact, one might be – one's – Ability to feel emotion will become more nuanced and articulated if one can consciously express how one feels about this or that. In fact, uh, it's like if somebody is um, not very sophisticated in terms of their selection in wine like me, I might just taste a red a Cabernet Sauvignon and think, huh, this tastes like a red wine. It could be a Merlot, it could be from California, it could be from Italy, it could be um, from France, it could be from anywhere and it's just a red. Whereas somebody with a more sophisticated understanding, with more experience and a more nuanced um, um, set of tools to approach the situation with could rank order that particular wine – and place it within categories of like California wine, Cabernet Sauvignon, how much they like Sauvignons as opposed to Merlots, how much they like that certain drink uh, with the whatever it is that they're eating. And their rank order would put that in a much more detailed map in a much more specific place than mine would that would be more oceanic in terms of saying, oh, that red wine I ate with that random meal that is somewhat forgettable. And that is what starts to develop in language throughout history as well. Because if we look to um, much, much older writing systems, we see the hieroglyphic, hieroglyphics, which means in Greek, holy letters. Um, we see the hieroglyphics as essentially pictograms. We see also with the Chinese kanji, the, uh, the beauty of the kanji. And Ezra Pound says that originally the kanji were written to be ideograms representations of 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 the thing itself that was perceived um small pieces of art in that way and um in fact he uses the kanji picture for or ideogram for tree to illustrate that point it's very beautiful we truly do see the world symbolically as both jung and peterson and i now agree to say But then we encounter languages a little further on, like the Semitic languages, which, um, though they have more of a character structure, they do not yet include vowels. So again, there's more and more this idea that something has to be added by the reader, and we do provide more because now there's a structure of language, there is a connection between the lettering and the speech utterance in a way that does not appear to be present With the Egyptian hieroglyphics. But something more is still left out. Actually parts of the word. It's almost as if they're the parts of the word. Are left out on the paper. Because that's the divine element. That a human breathes into them. Or something like that. And so a little further on in history. And actually I think there's some debate about linear A. And linear B. And whether the oldest language. In the Western tradition was Semitic in character or Greek in character. Again, something that's in Tintii Antiqui could give us quite some insight on, I believe. Um, the thing in Greek and Latin, and even in German, which consciously attempted to emulate Latin, is that the verb and the subject, like I know or you do, or he she it is. Are connected. They do have personal pronouns for emphasis, but they're far less commonly used than, in say, our language. And so there's a connection between the thing doing the act and the act itself. There is a, a, a non-severable, an intractable connection between them, as if one truly is the action as one does it. In fact, maybe uh, uh, contrary to how we seem to see the world. That the action, the action is primary and the subject is secondary. Um, though, one could also see it as more of a 50-50 sort of thing. Um, though, 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 it is certainly true that it is the ending of the word, not the beginning, that tells one who the subject is in Greek, Latin, and German. Not, and so, the, the action does come first, literally speaking. And so then we get to our language, which has its very much sophisticated punctuation system, is the language not only of culture, but also of science currently. And we, well, one other small difference between us and the Greeks and Romans and Germans, they place their verb at the end of a sentence often. And it's a mark of high intelligence to be able to construct very very long and detailed and highly articulated sentences and then leave off the full meaning of it until the verb at the end uh, therefore making even listening to such a speech an iq uh level event because of the level of or an iq necessary event a g-loaded event uh because of the level of working memory one would have to keep one would have to have in order to keep such thought in one's mind and. In fact, when I was first studying Greek and Latin, I can recall that having been a major limitation of mine to a quick g- growth in my, my translating studies. Uh, they there, keeping as much in my mind as I needed to in order to translate when I was first learning the languages was very, very, very difficult. It was, it was an almost insuperable difficulty for me, but I just grit and determination and kept moving forward. And, well... <clears throat> Now we're talking like this. And so the idea was that an entire sentence, and the word sentence comes from sententia, which means thought, complete thought, was that when one spoke in those languages, one had a full thought in mind before one opened one's mouth. Which meant that one truly could measure the intellect of another citizen in that way by how large a thought they could comprehend at once and produce. Um, and that would also certainly speak of high education because memorization of such sorts of speeches would likely occur um, in order to give people constellations on which to draw in order to show their mental capabilities and thus their class uh, in any uh at, at a whim and in fact that is um that is almost certainly the the major distinction between high german and low german though that's another topic that on which i could stand to be enlightened um to to quite some extent um the most complete or the highest versions of the language uh the least vulgar the least common tend to be those which require the le- highest g loading in order to maintain in working memory all that has been in set said in order to comprehend the full extent of the thought and so you also see i think in our language in english a uh, a certain recklessness uh to it and a certain americanness to it i would say in our expression of it and that we often speak on the fly we speak straight from our hearts as we're as we're moving forward and in fact that that traditionally has been something that seems to be important to americans that they can trust the heart of the person speaking to them that they don't speak with two tongues like odysseus that they they're not they're not sitting there thinking up exactly what the right words are in order to express themselves in the most technical possible manner like i do but rather speaking speaking from their being and speaking are giving into putting into words exactly what it is they think and feel in that exact moment which can of course lead to faux pas but living on the frontier and the in the west here out in San Diego that seems to be sort of part of the idea of being an american and how we express ourselves in language that it's not so much that we care what it is that we say to each other so much as that it is honest what it is that we say And that even if that causes a minor conflict in the moment, that that is a major win in the long run because then you know exactly what it is that those people around you are thinking and how they feel and where they stand. And that makes them far less likely to be, say, resentful and violent towards one because you can have your differences and everybody is allowed those. And that, I think, is what diversity truly is having people around you who are willing and able to express themselves and their multivaried views and in so doing shape your view of the world and your understanding of your role within it because not only do they express themselves and further articulate who they are in in giving voice to their beings, you do the same thing when you articulate in response to them and in fact as they make their positions clearer your positions, rather than becoming vaguer as they currently are in our culture, will become clearer as well. And so it's interesting. To some extent, the language which it is we speak, at least in comparison to those languages inflected, which require verbs to be conjugated in the thought of the conjugation of the verb, and therefore the, com- the telos of the thought, the completion, the end, being in one's mind before one ever gives voice to it, well we can be it seems slightly more honest to our being in a more nuanced way as we speak in the moment that we speak and that since we go seemingly word by word that we can change and alter and reflect that on reflect on and continually adapt that which it is which we are saying not only To the audience which we are attempting to express ourselves to, but in response to the feelings coming from our own being as we express ourselves. And so that's a rather roundabout way of saying that just as civilization throughout time has become more focused on articulating clearly what the truth is, and we are even seeing, I would say, a renaissance of that and our capacities to interpret art, both popular at the current moment, but uh, of course epic and mythological in scope, and of other scopes as well, but those being the ones that have the most information embedded within them, nested within them, in a polysemic way. That means they are capable of being read at multiple levels and therefore one can receive a proportionately higher amount of information from them because of those multiple levels of meaning. It's sort of like how our brain because it has so many wrinkles in it, it isn't simply flat has larger surface area and so it's capable or has more connections and it is capable of storing more and producing more actions and representations than otherwise it would be if it were not so highly articulated. And so, as culture has progressed in terms of its art, stories, and language, and as a human ontogenetically progresses, it that means in terms of its being, rather than phylogenetically, in terms of its species, so does that human become more concerned with expressing the truth that he or she can ex- perceive in a nuanced way, in precisely the nuanced way That is required in order for somebody to see the thought in the nuanced and its fully nuanced and articulated fashion. In fact, the best artists and writers want to lead one exactly to it the truth it is which one perceives within one's mind or heart. Or represents within one's imagination in the case of a visual artist. And so, as the young writer develops they realize that it is actually to their greater glory and to the greater glory of the truth which they wish to express to be as exacting as possible in how they articulate the message it is which comes from their pen, tongue, paintbrush, keyboard or whatever tool it is which they wield as artist and so that's what I have to say on that This has been episode 40. Please share, please subscribe, please call in. I love answering any questions. Um, I've recently started a Patreon account. Alexander Schmid there. If you'd like to go by there and make any requests to me or donate, please feel free to. And I intend to answer the remainder of Mr. Shant's book, Warm Games' talent. Uh, Tomorrow, he asked a question about the etymology of of theos, related not to theos, as I had suggested earlier, which means speed, but related to thea, or a spectator, which is related to theasthai to behold, in wonder, and the theatron, which is the theater, and I have some I have some insight into this, though again, sententiae Antiquae, I would love to hear what it is they have to say, but um, yes, I have recently started teaching Oedipus Tyrannus to my students, and so since that is... From the Greek play, from the Greek stage, I have ventured in to uh, the etymology and the usage of thea and theatron and theasai recently, as well as seeing what it is that is behold beheld rather on the Greek stage myself with the students, and so I'm looking forward to answering that question, likely early tomorrow in episode 41. Well, thank you. Have a good night.